0: Hey, this is Jerry. Before you get started with episode one of the Plant Based Entrepreneur Show, I just needed to let you know that we had a couple Skype connectivity issues on this call. Nothing major, we managed to edit most of them out, but I really apologize for the occasional dropped word or weird noise. The thing is, I really enjoyed talking to Josh. I know you're going to enjoy listening to him as well. And well, I just wanted to get this out to you as soon as possible. So here it is.
1: And after working with so many of these food companies, I realized they're not made up of bad people. You know, most of the people who work at the grocery stores and, and restaurant chains and, and food service, you know, they're not evil. You know, they don't want to see animals suffer. They, they just happen to work at companies that are caught up in a system, and that system is bad.
2: Welcome to the Plant-Based Entrepreneur Show with your host, Jerry Saver.
0: Hello and welcome to episode one of the Plant-Based Entrepreneur Show. My name is Jerry Saver and this is the podcast where I talk to entrepreneurs, startup founders, established business owners who are changing the way we think about our food system, agriculture, clothing, fashion, raw materials, Basically, people who are taking us into a plant based future. And I'm really excited to be talking to Josh Bach today because he definitely ticks most of those boxes. He's been doing this for well over a decade. He's the senior director of food policy with the Humane Society of the United States. He's in the Animal Rights Hall of Fame and he's also the co founder of Hampton Creek. So, Josh, welcome to the show.
1: Jerry, it's an honor to be on. Thank you so much for having me on your first show. It's a wonderful moment for me and and I'm sure for all your listeners too. So thank you for having me on.
0: Yeah, Thank you for joining me to kick this off. I know that your area of expertise is just the perfect topic to get this show up and running. But before we get into all the amazing things that you are doing right now, can you give me a bit of a background as to what brought you to this point and how how far back does this passion of yours for making things right actually go
1: i cared about animals since i was a kid probably just like you and your listeners and you know i had dogs growing up and they weren't pets they're members of my family and i started to enlarge in my circle of moral concern uh, as uh, peter singer says and and I started caring about animals beyond those who are in my home. So I started caring about those animals I would see outside, the squirrels and the robins. I would, you know, have concern about those animals who I never get to meet, but I got to see on TV, you know, like whales and gorillas and and you know, eventually I saw a documentary and it showed how animals are raised for food in these factory farms. And I got to see them confined in cages where they could barely move an inch. I got to see how they're slaughtered and in absolutely terrible conditions, and it uh, tugged at my heart a lot. Uh, I changed my diet to reflect it. I became vegetarian, and uh, not too long later, after hearing about the industrial dairy and egg industries, uh, became vegan. And then I started volunteering when I was at college uh, at animal organizations, including interning at the Humane Society of the United States. And a short time later. I started working in a D.C.-based animal organization called Compassion Over Killing. And that's a D.C. organization that does a lot of work promoting uh, plant-based foods and, and also does things like advertising on television and, and online forums. And uh, when I was there, I also did uh, undercover investigations and got to see some uh, pretty bad things uh, firsthand and, and document them so we got to allow even more people to know about the horrors that go on in these factory farms and solder houses. And back then, a few years after that, I joined the Humane Society of the United States in 2005, January. And I've been there ever since, Jerry.
0: So what documentary was that? Uh, Was it Earthlings?
1: You know, that was, uh, for me, that was long before Earthlings. This was back in uh, the late 90s. Yes, this is back, I think, around 1996, so and and call the movie there's a it was a documentary by HBO and i think it was called to love or kill and it showed how we love some animals and we ignore the plight of others and it, it really made me think and it was in this documentary i saw a lot of things i've never seen before and and uh you know it was almost the same day that my you know friends and i rented this Film and it's I think kind of like a pseudo documentary because I've read later that not everything was real in some of the footage, but the animal footage certainly was, and it showed these animals being killed in in uh, slaughterhouses. I think it was, if I recall, it was called uh, something about you know real life death or something like that. a really you know, disgusting film. Actually, now that I remember, it's called Faces of Death. And you know the combination of the, those two documentaries really put me on the, the the spot in terms of reflecting my own actions whether they align with with my my values and and made me think beyond i've ever thought before when it came to animals
0: yeah was was that aligned with the way you were brought up because you know your your background your childhood story it kind of reads like the all-american poster boy playing baseball (laughs) in high school and college raised in pennsylvania so um, were, were your parents vegetarian or were they at least happy and okay with you moving into that direction
1: well i appreciate you you saying that i'm an all american poster that's very nice of you and uh and I, maybe i should hire you as an agent one day because it makes me <laughs> relate that. thank you well that, that's too kind that's too kind what i would, would say is that i did play the american pass of baseball a lot and i was fairly good at it and and i had the chance to play uh, throughout high school at a pretty high level and i had aspirations of becoming Professional baseball player, uh, which ended when I was when I hurt my shoulder. Uh, during that, I'm though playing baseball. You know, I, I did have a, a greater understanding about causes out there in the world that that I just think were, we're just we're wrong. And you know, whether it came to issues on on civil rights or um, or, or issues regarding racism. Yeah, these are issues that my dad taught me a whole lot about growing up because he fought in the civil rights movement. He taught in high school uh, about Martin Luther King and Gandhi and, and issues regarding uh, the Vietnam War and other issues, you know, the past you know, century that became you know, issues that I think when we reflect back, we realize that we can make a lot of changes, that we would have made a lot of changes uh, if we were uh, stronger, you know, perhaps morally. And... That led me into examining other issues that perhaps my dad didn't talk to me as much about, and that had to do with animals. And I just felt this sense of injustice what was happening to them. And I just feel bad for anyone who's bullied. I don't care whether this person is bullied because you know, she's a woman, or because he has a different religion, or because she has a different sexual preference, or this animal happens to be an animal, Bullying to me was just wrong and it wasn't to the point where I should pick and choose which bullying is okay or not. It came to the point of thinking if all bullying is wrong, if being cruel to anyone is wrong, especially to the innocent, how can I ever ignore what's going on to billions of animals who are completely innocent and some of the most horrific things we could ever imagine are happening to them on a daily basis? And I think the fact that you know, they're so innocent, they can't speak out for themselves, and we have almost you know, cl- full clearance to do whatever we want to them that brought me to that issue uh, perhaps beyond others. And, and I'm, I'm proud that, that I've had a chance to, to join the animal movement uh, and do you know, what I can along with so many people across the United States around the world to improve the lives of animals. And you know, I certainly want to you know, thank my dad growing up a sense of justice into my head regarding standing up when things don't seem right, and and I hope I've done that.
0: Beautiful. Yeah, yeah. I I see a lot better now where you're coming from and why you have this drive to make things right. And it, it also makes it a lot clearer to understand why you chose the job that you chose, why you started working with the Humane Society of the United States and compassion over killing before that. Because if I understand correctly, you were volunteering there first, right? And then that turned into a full-time job? Well, you know, I,
1: mean, so what happened is I was walking down the street and I saw a building that said Humane Society of the United States. And I was with my friends and I'm sure, you know, I was wearing sneakers and ripped jeans and an old T-shirt I probably didn't wash. And, uh, and I saw the building with a label and I said, hey, friends, you know, I'll, I'll catch up to you, you know, to my buddies. And I walked in the building, and not really knowing what the Humane Society of the United States was, I just thought, hey, I'm sure they help animals. I thought I might as well go in here and see what I can do to help. And I got in there, and pretty much everyone was wearing suits and ties and looked really nice. And I walked in thinking, what the heck happened? Did I enter the twilight zone? Who are these people? How are they helping animals? And what I soon found out is that that building I went into, and for me, and I don't think this would happen in this day and age, I Right on the spot, as soon as I walked in, no background check, nothing. And uh, shortly after the interview, they said, Okay, great, you just want to start now? And, and I did. And I just, just became a, a, an ardent uh, volunteer that became an internship at the Marine Society of the United States all throughout uh, George Washington University and a half of my college education. And so I'd go there almost every single weekday to to help out and, and do some things. I thought were kind of cool. Go to to Washington D.C. on Capitol Hill and drop off literature to the congress people and senators. You know, I would do phone banking to urge people to contact your legislatures to help pass bills that were good for animals and kill bills that are bad for animals and various other activities. So I was fired up then. I was really honored to to work at the Humane Study and and sure after college I didn't go directly to the Humane Society of the United States in terms of my employment. I instead went to an organization called Compassion Over Killing, which was uh, at the time you know a real grassroots organization. I was the third employee ever hired. Very small, but but we uh, we had some really interesting, innovative ideas to spread the word on farm animals and to tackle the issues that I think uh, are most pressing within animal agriculture. So I was there for about three years before going to the Humane Society of the United States.
0: Yeah, and during your time with Compassion Over Killing, you were actually working undercover in uh, slaughterhouses. Was that your choice, or was that just what the organization was doing at the time?
1: Yeah, for some part of it, for some part of it, it, yeah, for for some part of it, Jerry, I worked... uh, at a chicken slaughterhouse in, in Maryland and I worked there for roughly a month uh, videoing what was going on with a hidden camera and I also you know got some footage of of catching, which is when workers go to a warehouse where the chickens were being raised in, in meat production and and grabbing them and tossing them in to carrying cases that were then on and brought to slaughter, so I got footage in, on, on both accounts, and you had a chance to get some good attention um, for what was going on with these animals. you know it was not fun and there are people who do far more investigations than I did. I mean there are people who have done investigations for more than a decade and and I certainly uh, didn't haven't done as they have but you know sir, with that uh, experience at that slaughterhouse, you know aside from you know being proud that our organization brought to the surface these zoos. It, it allowed me to fully grasp what we are trying to tackle because it's no longer in a book, no longer listen to a podcast or listen to the radio or seeing a video. this is actually happening right in front of my face, and that all of that stuff that was going on is happening when I leave as well and is going on to this day. And so that, if anything, uh, has provided me with great motivation. You work as hard as it can for the animals.
0: Yeah, I, um, I really I can't imagine how that must have been like. But um, I heard your chicken story. And um, I, I don't know if you want to share that again or not. It's, um, it's pretty intense. But you you call that one of your defining moments when you were working in that uh, chicken slaughterhouse on, on your first day. And you came pretty much face to face with that chicken being shackled up
1: you're right jerry when When I started working at the slaughterhouse, you know go through the initial interview process, which is extremely quick, uh, they do some training for you, which virtually none of it comes down to how to handle the animal i was was employed to be in the shackling crew, so they could burn them and you shackle them on the shackles that then bring them to the next slice where they're killed. So I had, which was, you know, fairly quick and, and just kind of back to do nothing in terms of how handle the animals. So my, after the training, it first started early in the morning. It was something like four thirty five AM when my shift started. I got there, I got my, in my, you know, overalls and, and it's kind of the suit that covered me from, you know, from my feet up to my neck and got a hat on, a little kind of a a knit hat on my head to, uh, prevent my hair from, from going different places. And, and I walked into the, the, the shackling room and it just, you know looked very intense and you get hit with a horrible smell it's dark because when birds are shackled in the meat industry it it happens in near darkness there's a little bit of red light and that is an attempt to calm the birds birds are a bit calmer in the dark rather than light so it's the smell hits you right in the face it's dark and you see these shackles in front of you and then the conveyor belt started to move and nothing was coming down the 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 conveyor belt at first. You know, I was in a a row with maybe about uh, 10 other people or so. Then I looked to my left and I got to see the birds coming down right towards me. The head of the shackling crew on duty came over and he's like, Hey, here's how you do it. And he grabbed a chicken and, and, and grabbed her by the legs, shackled her extremely. And basically just said, you grab her by the legs, shackle her. You grab them grab by the legs, shackle them. And it was, that was the extent of the training in terms of how to handle the animals. So it was a, a matter of seconds. And then I saw the first chicken coming my way to get shackled by me, not anyone else at this point. And I remember looking at her being overwhelmed with sadness, what was about to happen. And I grabbed her, and I just remember thinking you know how sorry I was for her, and especially that it was happening at my hands and in my head, I was kept repeating, "I'm so sorry, I'm so sorry and I shackled her, and you know those are one of the moments in your lives that you just don't forget you know the first animal who who I had to shackle you know in that slaughterhouse. And sometimes, you know, when we think of animals and food production, the numbers are so overwhelming. You know, we can't picture billions of animals. We can't even un- understand, grasp how many animals that is. We can't even you, look across, again, our imagination and picture what billions of animals would look like. But it, all those animals are individuals. And I'll never forget the first individual who I actually grabbed in, in a slaughterhouse, how scared she was, how you know she fought for her life. She hit me with her wings. She pecked at me with her beak. And just because of our own dietary choices, this animal had to go through that, that torture. And it certainly crushed my heart. I still think about that moment. Uh, to this day and it's been you know more than ever since that happened and I hope that I represented her well when the investigation ended and, uh, and I got to share the story about what it was like uh, for those poor chickens.
0: I think you did and I think you still are and um, I thank you for sharing this experience. I, I know it's a tough one and I know it's hard to revisit stuff like that, but I think it's it's one of the things that defines you and it, it defines your work from, from then on, and I think you are using it to make as much good as possible. But I have another question related to your undercover work with um, Compassion Over Killing, because... and. This might be just, you know, my, my own personal impression, but I think that most of the people doing undercover works in uh, slaughterhouses and um, animal liberation stuff and things like that, they usually take a much more hardcore abolitionist approach to, to veganism. And on the other hand, compassion over killing and the humane society of the United States they favor a lot more pragmatic approach to things to the point where the abolitionist vegans would probably call it fraternizing with the enemy so what what's your opinion about this
1: you're right Jerry at the humane society of the united states we care nothing more than being effective to help animals you know i think for many of us When we first got started, I know for me for sure and I'm sure others as well, you know, personal purity was important. You know, what made us feel better? What made us feel good about who we are as people? And I think sometimes it doesn't exactly align with what's most effective to actually help the animals because after all, this is about the animals, not about us. For me, I care more about being effective than anything, and that's being effective at reducing the suffering of animals and ensuring that they have a better life. So we, what we do at the Humane Society of the United States is make choices on the type of campaigns we wage with that in mind. And that's why we focused over the past you know, 10 years on eliminating the worst confinement systems in the United States for farm animals, talking about veal crates where these poor calves shortly after birth from the dairy industry are confined to a point they can't even turn around. Gestation crates where mother pigs are put inside a cage so small, they can't turn around and they're in there for their entire life, which could be up to four years. We're talking about battery cages where eggling hens are confined to a point. They can't even spend, extend their limbs. They're in there for about a year and a half to two years and given less than an iPad to live on for their entire life. So these are systems that, that in totality, hundreds of millions of animals a year. They are as cruel and inhumane as it comes. And most important, perhaps, in terms of the effectiveness of eliminating those prices, is that they're so abusive that the public also agrees they should go. So we're finding cases... Regarding the treatment of animals that is so out of step with consumer sentiment that as long as we start aligning a policy with everyday consumers, we can make big strides for animals. And what we've done is to work with the largest food corporations in the United States to enact policies to eliminate products that come from those practices. We've also worked in, in about 10 states in the country to ban all or some of those practices. And as we're talking, there's a measure in Massachusetts to not only ban this from being done in the state, but also ban the sale of products that come from practices like veal crates, gestation crates, and batter cages. And so this is gonna be the most extensive law for farm animals in world history uh, throughout Massachusetts and across the United States. So that's that's the reason why we, we focus on those confinement systems. We've been affected at it and we're going to keep going forward in a pragmatic way to help as many animals as we can
0: yeah and you know what i really like that approach because just like you said it's not just about personal purity it's not just about feeling good about yourself and your choices it's about maximizing the amount of good that you can possibly do and well harsh as it may sound if you or the Humane Society of the United States, if, if you get a million people to cut down on their animal products, on their consumption of meat by 50%, in the end, that still makes a lot bigger difference to the animals than if someone just converts, let's say, 10,000 people into complete vegans. Uh, I. I think
1: you made a lot of good points, and our focus at the Humane Society of the United States regarding meat reduction has to g- go around with concepts like Meatless Monday, or Vegan Before 6 p.m., uh, or Becoming flexible. These are all great steps that if we can get the majority of the population to do, who others would be stuck in factory farms. A, a major effort in our meat reduction programs has to do with working with colleges, universities, kindergarten through 12th grade schools, hospitals, even prisons and military installations to add more plant-based meals to their menu. What we found is that this food service community already agrees that they should offer more plant-based meals. They understand that because of the health implications that they're seeing across the country of, of Increased meat consumption has occurred since uh, World War II, but fortunately now it's it's starting to decrease. Uh, They're seeing it because of the issues that come because of animal factory farming. And over the past numerous years, for five years, we've worked with more than a thousand institutions to decrease their meat offerings and offer more plant-based foods. And so this is a way to work in the food system to shift our nation's diet away from being as animal protein focused as it has in the past. So we've had a, a wonderful list of accomplishments, You know, some of them including getting the Los Angeles School District to do 100% Meatless Monday every Monday. We work with numerous other cities to do the same. We worked with the largest university in the United States, Arizona State University, to add... A plant-based dining section in the dining hall in every single meal. Dining halls all throughout their campus are now um, now placed and and providing more options than ever before that don't involve uh, using animal proteins. So we have uh, a list of thousands of, uh, of victories over the past uh, four or five years in working with these institutions, and more to come. These institutions are just more excited than ever before to have a more of a, a plant-centric focus on their meal offerings.
0: So based on what you've already accomplished, where do you see the future of our food headed right now?
1: According to the data, uh, in the United States at least, you know, more people than ever before are incorporating plant-based meals into their diet. That should be vegan or vegetarian, but they are eating more plant-based breakfasts, lunches, dinners than ever before. And you can take a look at the products that are being sold in grocery stores and in restaurants, and we're seeing more plant-based meat offerings than ever before. You, know, you one can go to places, you know, like. Burger King or Taco Bell or Chipotle, or even places like Castle, you know these are places in the United States at least, that are known for you know vegetarian offerings, but now have them. You know years ago they certainly didn't. You know in the grocery side of things, you can go into the largest grocers in the United States. You know Walmart and and Costco, Safeway, and all the others and find a whole variety of these plant-based meats. So we're moving in a good direction. I think the trajectory is very clear in the United States that we are going to become more of a plant-centric nation. We're headed that way. The food industry realizes it. There are more and more companies popping up that are offering these foods. And I'm excited to see what happens over the next five and 15 years, just how far we can get as quickly as possible.
0: And speaking of those companies, um, let's talk about Hampton Creek because you're the co-founder and if I understand correctly, you've known Josh Tetrick for quite a long time, right?
1: We grew up together uh, since uh, sophomore year, I would say. So we we always uh, got together in high school and trained together because we both wanted to be professional athletes. He wanted to be a professional football player, i wanted to be a professional baseball player. And So we, we exercised together. We... Yeah, you know, we trained hard. We watched uh, sports a whole lot. We read a lot of books on, on athletics and and uh, looked up to people like Michael Jordan and and uh, the stars of 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 an uh, NFL which for those international listeners is a professional football league in the United States. And uh, as well as other sports and so that was for life and, and we became uh, dear friends because of that, and that uh, we we've uh, remained good friends ever since
0: right, um, but how do you go from reading sports magazines to deciding that you want to completely disrupt the egg industry like ha- How does that even happen i mean i I do recall Josh Tetrick uh, saying something about you coming up with the idea to to go into that direction. Is that right?
1: Well, we certainly took from paths to get there, Jerry. I started right after uh, high school, starting in college, to begin volunteering and interning at animal protection organizations and, and been uh, working with them ever since. And Josh, on the other hand, he went to go p- to places like Africa uh, where he would help uh, street children who were homeless uh, get food and, and, and shelter and, and get safer away from crime and violence. Uh, he'd also worked in Africa to help women. Uh, get education for the first time, came back to the United States and worked for President Clinton and worked at a law firm. So we had different paths after after high school and and college, but eventually he wanted to to start a company that was inherent for the world. And, and because of my work with the food industry and at the Humane Society of the United States, I work with food corporations on their animal welfare policies. Because of my work doing that, I realized there was need, and that need was provide delicious food from plants that is geared more towards everyday omnivores versus focused on vegans and vegetarians. And yeah, I just thought to myself, if we can just make food this it's not going to matter regarding the ethics. People will start eating it and inherently it's going to be good for the world. And after working with so many of these food companies, I realized they're not made up of bad people. You know, most of the people work at the grocery stores and and restaurant chains and, and food service, you know, they're not evil. You know, they don't want to see animals suffer. They, they just happen to work at companies that are caught up in a system. And that system is bad. You know, it leads to a lot of animal suffering. It leads to a lot of greenhouse gas emissions. It leads to people being healthy. And so without judgment against the people who work there, let's create products that can align with their values because they want the world to be better as well. And that was the idea for him to create, create a, a company that would produce products that would be for everyone and that the food industry would embrace because it aligns with their values while also being delicious and affordable. And if you can make something delicious and affordable, and by the way, it happens to be better for the world, you know, I think that's a winning combination was the idea that, that I had with Josh and uh, so far... Uh, going pretty well
0: well yeah I, I would say that things have been going pretty well for hampton creek so far even though the food industry well at least certain parts of the food industry weren't exactly thrilled what you guys were doing and still aren't very happy with what you are doing but so far you've managed to get past pretty much all of the obstacles that they've put in your way right
1: some industry thrilled about Hampton Creek. As an example, the egg industry uh, hasn't been very happy about the growth of the company. In fact, documents have shown that the American Egg Board, which is a semi-governmental entity within the United States government, emailed with egg producers regarding the killing of the CEO, Josh Tetrick, at Hampton Creek. They've also tried to pay lobbyists to prevent Hampton Creek products from being sold on grocery stores. They paid bloggers to write bad things about the company. So there has certainly been an effort by some within the egg industry and overall food industry to try to take down Hampton Creek because of the disruption nature of the company. At the same time, most food companies who work with Hampton Creek are thrilled with it in fact the company Hampton Creek has products being sold at virtually every major grocer in the United States you know companies like Walmart and Costco and Safeway and Kroger these are some of the largest grocers in the United States and the world and they're wonderful partners with Hampton Creek you know Hampton Creek is partnered with Compass Group the largest food service company on the planet to provide products all across its 10,000 000- in the United States. We're talking about products like different flavors, mayonnaise, pancakes, muffins, cupcakes, cupcakes, and so there's been a lot of tremendous partners throughout the food industry, and I think a major reason is, is that Hampton Creek allows these people who work at the companies to begin to align their values with how they're running their business, and so I think they're thrilled about themselves, they're coming, are doing better for it, and see these relationships growing, and growing over the years.
0: Just going back to the handful of companies that aren't very happy with Hampton Creek. Right now, uh, we're talking; in, it's in the middle of August, and Hampton Creek is again in the headlines, in what Josh tetrick called the Great Mayo Buyout of 2014, and some others are calling just Mayo Gate. Well. To me, it seems like it's round two of something. Like if you can't actually block a company and prevent it from using a certain name for its product, then go and try to dig up as much dirt on it as possible. Would you agree?
1: Yeah, yeah. Yeah it, yeah, it seems that way, Jerry. You know, there are a lot of people who are who are asking you know, some serious questions about you know, the oddity of that story. So, I mean, in short, listeners have heard... At Hemde Creek, years ago, when it had about 25 people at the company, it had to do quality assurance for its products, and it doesn't have, you know, hundreds of people do this like one would have at Nestle or Crimes, or Unilever, uh, other major entities. Hemde Creek had to do it in, in a different way, just because it had just a few dozen people working at the company. So what it did is. is hire contractors across the country just to buy some products the shelves and to do tests them. So rather than than having a team of a hundred or so people, you know, in house do play insurance, we had people across the country buy products to test and of the tests. It is it's kinda of laughable that, that some people think that's a big deal to to go out and uh, purchase the products. But at the end, I mean it was in the history of, of Hampton Creek. And you know, the company has been named as the fastest in the world by Inc. magazine. And it's just growing stronger every day.
0: Right. Now, let's just track back a bit to your beginnings. Hampton Creek has quite a lot of big names supporting it. They, you got quite a lot of big investors who believe in you. How did you get those people on board? was it um, just a matter of saying hey you know what we want to make eggless mayo or we want to go and change the world or we want to go and disrupt the egg industry or how did you get those people to believe in your vision and come on board financially to make it happen
1: fortunately for us most of the investors didn't have to be convinced at all you know, the idea about creating a thriving company that also is good for the world is something they believe in. And it was their I- excitement that brought to them to a company like Hampton Creek that lived those values. And for so long, I think people looked at corporations as, as uh, inherently being bad. However, I think capitalism and corporations can do good. And in fact, they can be inherently good if around the right business model. So for the roughly 12 billionaires or so that are invested in Hampton Creek, they're invested in a company that they think is going to be successful, but it also makes them proud to support. Uh, So far, the company has grown, you know, at first uh, it started out with one or two or three people after a couple weeks at a time after initial investment. But uh, every you know, six months, every year or so, there's new investors that come in and, and grow the company faster and faster. And at first, the company was
2: based in uh, a small apartment in Los Angeles. It grew into kind of a large garage in San Francisco, and now it's in a, a big facility uh, in the Bay Area that will allow the company to grow. Uh, right At this point in time, there's about 150 people who work at the company, and, and it's producing uh, more than 40 different types of products that are sold at thousands of grocers, and and uh, the only thing that
1: is a that uh, is is holding back growth is just is just speed, and because we just want to go as fast as possible, and so we're just trying to do it as fast as
2: possible, and uh, and fortunately, there's a because of the investment, because of the amount of revenue coming in from the sales. Uh, speed is coming a lot easier now than before, and so the company is certainly helping grow uh, as fast as possible to solve the big problems that
0: it's So, to what what are some of those problems, and what are some of the other forty plus products that Hampton Creek has? Because you you have uh, just mayo and it's different varieties, and you have cookie dough, but um, what what are some other products that Hampton Creek is working on? Well,
1: Jerry, the, the the big problems Hampton Creek is hoping to correct uh, have to do with external problems regarding greenhouse gas emissions, regarding uh, our diets focus on food that's that's more unhealthy, regarding the poor treatment of animals. And so because of that great need, of course, the company, just like probably your listeners, we want to go as fast as possible to resolve those, those global problems. Uh, in terms of the new products Hampton Creek has, it, it started out uh, selling mayo, and, and now it has numerous products uh, including many different flavors of mayo, numerous flavors of salad dressing, many different types of cakes and cupcakes and pancakes uh, and cookies and cookie dough. So the list goes on and on, different flavors of each of those
2: segments and uh, the product list is going to continue to grow. Uh, and and uh, fortunately, not only the products going to grow, the products that already exist are going to get into more markets
1: as each day and week and month goes by. So. Things are looking uh, very
2: good, of course. You never know what's going to happen in the future, but uh, at this point, I think uh, folks are cautiously optimistic that we're on a good path to
1: make a positive impact on the world.
0: Well, I think you're making a positive impact on the world already, you know. But how about your own personal course? Like in the next five years, do you see yourself working more with Hampton Creek as it grows? Staying with the Humane Society or is this just the right balance for you, what you have right now?
1: Well,
2: I've been at the
1: Humane Society of the United States now for 11 years and I'm thrilled to be here. I can't imagine uh, kinder, uh, more effective, hardworking co-workers and I can't imagine doing anything else. So I'm very happy. For me personally,
2: status quo is good and if I can continue... Uh, at this status quo personally of working with major food companies on their animal welfare policies like a, a Walmart or Wendy's or General Mills or dozens, dozens more, and help other companies be created and grow that are inherently good for animals, whether it's Hampton Creek or others that are producing products,
1: whereas the mission is
2: aligned with making the world better. You know, that would make me a, a happy person and uh, I think my life would be pretty fulfilled.
0: Good, so final question. If what we are seeing right now is just the beginning, how will our world look in 20 years? In
2: 20 years, we are going to see a dramatic change when it comes to a planet's dietary eating habits more focused on plants. Obviously, different countries in the world, different regions of the world have their own diets. And, and history when it comes to eating. At the same time, we can't grow our global population the way it is without changing how we're eating. There's simply not enough land for all the animals uh, who would be needed to, if we continue the way we're eating. There's not enough land to grow all the crops to feed those animals either. and because of the greenhouse gas emissions that come from raising animals in industrial ways and the way that uh, most of these animals are, uh, the planet's gonna warm to a point that's gonna harm human population, let alone animal population, to a point that we might not recover. And so there's going to be a great need to change how we eat. And I can't imagine a a more effective way of doing it Than shifting to plant proteins, as well as doing techniques such as regular agriculture, where cells are produced in a growth-promoting media and duplicate and turn into flesh. The flesh turns into muscle, the muscle turns into meat. And so I can see in 20 years, Jerry, that people eating a lot more plant-based proteins and meat, but the meat didn't come from animals. Who are raised for food, more from cell- cellular agriculture operations. So uh, I think the future is hopeful. We got to work hard to get to that promised land of making the world a lot kinder, more humane place. But I think we have set the groundwork to get there in a way that we should be optimistic as long as we keep working hard.
0: Beautiful. Hey, thanks so much, Josh. Now, if people want to know more about you and all the amazing things that you are doing, where can they find you?
2: The well, folks can follow me on Twitter, at Josh Balk. And you can go to our website at the Humane Society of the United States, humanesociety.org. And I got to tell you, Jerry, it was a pleasure being on your inaugural show. I hope I'm on your 2 show as well. And keep up the great work that you're doing. I'm looking forward to being continuing well,
0: Josh, this has been great. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you for the work that you are doing with the Humane Society and what you're doing with Hampton Creek and I really hope that some of your products make it over to New Zealand soon, otherwise, I might seriously consider moving somewhere else to get to them <laughs> um, but, we'll get yeah this going, Jerry. Josh. Thank you so much for joining me and um, have an amazing day. You too. Okay, so that was Josh Balk and that was episode one of the Plant-Based Entrepreneur Show. What do you think? I hope you enjoyed listening to it just as much as I enjoyed talking to Josh. Now, unless you are tuning in for the sneak preview, you can go to www.theplantbasedentrepreneur.com to subscribe so you never miss an episode. And if you have any comments or suggestions about the podcast, or if you know a plant-based entrepreneur who absolutely should be featured on the show, you can email me directly on jerry at plantbasedentrepreneur.com. So until next week, stay amazing. And remember, the future is plant-based.